I wanted to um, speak about one more thing that I, and I don't even really remember how this, uh, why the video game people were talking about this. I do sort of. It's it's you know my it's sort of tangential, but to their world, but uh, very interesting and relevant for ours much more directly relevant than some of the other topics. And that's like this. When you boil down your experience in life, like your daily experience, and we always uh, talk about the duality of man, how we're a body and a soul, or a body and a mind, the, the physical self and the symbolic self, whatever phrases you like to use right, that we experience ourselves as uh, definitely physical beings in a physical world and also as mental beings. We have a whole inner world as opposed to the outer world that's very rich and in fact is the majority of what's going on with us is actually in the inner life, hopefully. But in terms of your experience of that, Besides the obvious, if you go through the experiences that you have over the course of a day, so you will find um, two basic types of experience. The things that you're involved in, right? the things that you do, let's say activities, we'll focus on that. You have two basic types of experience and activities, and obviously there's a spectrum because there always is that will be uh, extreme for the sake of getting the categories clear. And it's not complicated. One are things that you're doing automatically. And the other are things that you're conscious for. Right? Things that you're there for and things that you're, well, maybe somewhere else or not so much there. And an example, uh, brushing your teeth. Okay? Or eat, let's say even better, putting shampoo on in the shower. I'm assuming you take a shower, you take shampoo, so you grab the bottle of shampoo with one of your hands, and if you'll note, it's most likely always the same one. You squeeze it into the other hand. Now, I, don't know, I actually don't know how you guys put in shampoo, maybe you squeeze it right on your head, for all I know, but you should stop that because it's weird. Then you, what, I'll give you my own uh, program, you, you then rub it together between your two hands and then you massage it into your head in a very specific pattern and if you'll pay attention you'll see that you grab the bottle with the same hand you squeeze it around the same amount you rub your hands together the same number of times you then rub your head in a very particular motions and you use the same motions every time your hands really repeat that pattern uh, a few times until for some reason you decide you're done very much the same with brushing your teeth also, tube, toothpaste, which hands you use, how much you put, how many times you brush each side of each thing. Unless you're a conscious toothbrusher, there's a program for that. So over the course of your life, you have developed programs. Also drying off after the shower, interesting to watch the acrobatics that you do to get your back dry. Or you flip the towel from top to bottom. All of these different things, these are programs that you run. And they don't require your um, presence. Right? You can delegate 
those tasks to the body. Right? The body has its own kind of native intelligence, its own native ability. I won't call it an intelligence. It's not a source of behavior. Right? So it doesn't make choices in the sense that we normally mean. But it is very good at running programs, and once you build a program for it, it will uh, run that particular program the exact same way. Excuse the noise. Not my doing. It'll do run that program exact same way every time, and it can be very amusing if you uh, pay attention next time you're in the shower and you put the shampoo on to pay attention to exactly how you do it. It's amusing because your your hands, your arms, right, it seems to really have a, you, you can kind of get a real sense of it having a mind of its own. Uh, for more complex patterns, you can pay attention to the way you uh, walk downstairs, for example. And you'll note, well, we've spoken about this before, you'll note that when you Try to keep your eyes level, not looking at the stairs. When you approach a flight of stairs, you'll find that when you start, your eyes flicker down to see where the stairs start. Then your feet start running the walking downstairs program, which they then release control of your eyes, and your eyes, you're allowed to use your eyes for whatever you want. But then, when you get near the bottom of the stairs, and for me, my particular system, when I get to within the last five stairs, my body grabs control of my eyes again away from me and forces them to look down to count the remaining stairs. And then they relinquish control of the eyes and I can control my eyes again and my feet finish the program. So the beginning of the stairs need to be marked by the eyes and the end, like the last five stairs, need to be marked. And for that, your body will actually wrest control away from you of your eyes to... Um, for its own stair walking program. And that's, it's amazing. If you've never experienced it, I recommend go out right now and find a flight of stairs, okay? And try not to look at the stairs and you can feel when your body pulls you to force you to look at them. You can fight it obviously, but then you'll fall down the stairs. But it's, a, it's an incredible thing. So your body definitely is an animate object. And it's super important to recognize that is true it is also extremely, extremely frightening to realize the truth of this because we like to walk around with a sense of autonomy. We like to walk around with a sense that we're making decisions um, pretty much all the time, that all of our life is conscious and it's all us. And to start to recognize the extent that your body's just running its programs of course the day and how much of a passenger you really are on this thing, it, it does get... Uh, the thoughts get a little bit intense. If you have mental problems and you're not currently being medicated, that maybe uh, relax on this point. So that's all day long. This is going on. It's going on right now in some sense, right? Driving is also a good one. Whereas in the beginning when you were driving, you were very conscious. And my wife, when she started learning to drive, she wanted to look out the window and see the wheels, which way they were turning. A lot of beginning drivers like to look out, look up over the windshield, see the front of the car, right? They need to see where things are and how to move them around. And they are extremely sensitive to the, the brakes, the gas, the wheel, the everything, to the point where it could become overwhelming for them. But after 
years of driving, it's so incredibly automatic that you can do extremely complex maneuvers and gauge exact distances and spaces and things for exactly what you can do with your car and whatnot. It's incredible. It's a program and it frees you up. Here's the amazing thing about all these programs is they free you up to do other stuff. Right? While you're brushing your teeth, you can think about whatever you want. While you're going downstairs, you can text on your phone while you're walking downstairs or while you're driving. Don't text while you're driving. In this country, they just they made rules besides like the however many shekel fine they give you, 3,000 shekel something, they could actually uh, revoke your license, uh, I think for a month or something, for texting while driving, because it kills people. Don't text while driving, people, what's wrong with you? It was a public service announcement. But you could text while driving. That's incredible. The incredibly complex process that is driving. Think about the number of things you pay attention to while you're driving. Every other car, every person, every place where a person could be, everything that the other cars might be doing soon. You're going to change lanes. You're paying attention not only to the car in front of you and behind you, or in front of behind you in the lane next to you, but also cars two lanes over that look like they're going to pull into the lane that you're pulling into. You also notice them out of your periphery. It's incredible. And you're texting all the time. It's an incredible program. So your body is very intelligent. Runs programs all the time and doesn't need your help for them at all. And in certain areas of life, it is very good. It's a very good idea to relinquish control of those things to the body. The body does a good job and in fact in many things does a much better job than you would ever do if you were doing it consciously. Now I know the Ramchal says no. Uh, the Ramchal says as a general rule, even though things happen naturally, when we get involved consciously it makes things better. Um, he says this in his introduction to one of the Derech Tvunos Sefer Higayon type books. Um, he says, well trees will grow and grow fruit naturally. Uh, if you get involved and cultivate them, you can grow much better fruit, much more fruit, uh, higher quality, that kind of thing. So that's true in a lot of areas, but for example, in sports, um, there's, a, there's a very famous book by Timothy Galloway called The Inner Game of Tennis, uh, and I rec it's recommended reading, it's on my recommended reading list, a fantastic book where he really discusses this at length, uh, this very concept we're discussing now, um, and points out that the body is much better at tennis than your mind. And to the extent that you try to control the body and do it, make it do what you want it to do, uh, you don't know what it does. He's talking about tennis, like just hitting a tennis ball. There's hundreds of muscles involved. You don't even know where those muscles are located. Here, right now, right? Everybody right now, you can uh, squeeze your fingers, right, open and close your hand right now, right? Or make a fist and uh, move it up and down, sort of like you're uh, curling uh, weight. So you feel like when you're moving your fingers that you're moving your fingers, right? But where are the muscles that are moving? But if you feel up your forearm, there's actually muscles firing in your forearm that are pulling strings that are connected. This is an extremely uh, technical medical description. There's ropes in your forearm. There's muscles pulling the ropes in your forearm that are moving your fingers or your fist. You weren't even thinking about your forearm. All of a sudden your forearm starts getting sore you weren't aware your forearm was involved in this. You were just talking to the fingers. So you're literally just informing the body, hey, I want my fingers to move. And the body's like, okay, we gotta fire the forearm things. But it does it for you, right? If you were in charge of the fingers, you'd be trying to move the fingers with the fingers the whole time and you'd never get it done. You didn't even know there was stuff in the forearm and upper arm that had to be done altogether. Okay, the body's smart. You control it extremely minimally. Most of its systems, it runs without you. And even the muscular systems that are so-called voluntary are still not really you doing it. You're really just relaying instructions and then the body knows how to uh, follow them. 
It's like, oh, he wants to walk. Oh, he wants to make a fist. Oh, he wants to whatever. Okay, we'll make it happen. Good. So that's the programming part. And the problem is, is that the body's so good. We're not saying chidushim yet. The body's so good at this that you can actually uh, program your entire day. Okay, your entire day can be programmed because what gets scary is, is that, you know, physical processes like walking downstairs or brushing your teeth or shampooing your hair, these kind of things, okay, great, yeah, the body takes over. I don't want to have to consciously shampoo my hair every time. It's annoying. And everything takes much longer when you do it consciously. I've been brushing my teeth for years. Right? I like that the body takes over and does these things for me. I like that I can set it and forget it, like the old infomercials. I like that. But when we move up a stage in terms of our activities and interactions, now it starts to get more disturbing. Um, and for this, obviously, I'm not talking to any of you who are fully conscious, uh, you know, enlightened human beings. Um, but think about other people that you know for whom this might be true. Uh, let's say people that you are uh, sitting near them on the bus or you guys don't take buses. Wherever it is that you're in groups of people, chill, I listen to them talk. And what becomes apparent is, again, only for other people, is that also in conversation, these same programs can get run. Right? For all you South Africans out there, um, I always thought a good skit would be a short film of two South Africans meeting on a street corner. And one of them is like, oh, so good to see you. How are you doing? And the other one says, good, and you? And then that one says back, good, and you? Like he... There's a short circuit, and then the whole film is like the changing of the seasons around them as they good and you each other, and you know, total inability to escape the interaction, like in an infinite loop of good and use. That is a program. You're not consciously saying good and you. People ask you how you're doing, you say thank God, you say I'm doing all right, uh, and it's what's uh. You don't think about the words. These are just noises, socially appropriate noises, that we make when we get within a certain proximity of other human beings. There are certain noises that we make at them and certain noises that they make back, and they're culturally and societally sort of decided which phrases you use. So you say things like, hey man, what's up? So that doesn't mean anything. It's just an acknowledgement that you're near the other human being. And, he's, and he doesn't even answer the question. Hey, man, what's going on? Hey, dude, what's up? Right? That, there was no interaction there. There were no questions asked and no answers given. It was just a noise indicating, hey, you're there and I'm here. Hey, man, you're there and I'm here. Right? It's just an acknowledgement of the presence of the other human being. That's what we do. And beyond the initial greetings, the whole interaction uh, plays out in, very, in particular scripts and with different types of people. There's whole books and bookshelves full of books written about this stuff. Um, you know, there are different numbers of interactions you're going to have with different types of people for acquaintances. You know, it'll just be a, could just be a nod and a wave or a, hey, what's up? Hey, how's it going? And then you're done. For people that you're a little friendlier with, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was great. Hey, how you feeling? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Hey, how was that thing? All right, you get another couple of back and forths. As you get closer to the person, you have more and more interactions, but all those interactions can be scripted beforehand because, again, they're not really interactions. They're just conversation programs that are being run. All right, so it's your, your eyes identify a particular human being, 
right, in a particular proximity to you. And again, there are times when uh, the proximity that they have to you, or the interaction they have with you, is a little questionable, and you're not sure if you need to say hi or not, because they're in like this gray area. If they're too far away, so you don't have to say hi. And if they're right close to you, then you have to say hi. But there's a gray area where your brain is unclear as to whether you need to engage them or not. It's amusing to, to watch these things take place. But your brain identifies the person, identifies the proximity and the need for interaction. And then, you know, in its uh, kind of, uh, in its, uh, you know, it, it accesses all your, your file on this guy or girl and makes a decision of how, what kind of, conversation program they need to run. You say, oh, this is a guy I know from work. I need to, uh, this needs to be a, a, a six-stage interaction, right? It'll be a, hey, what's up? How you doing? How was your weekend? I'm doing good. Looking forward to seeing you on Monday. All right, see you, bro, later, right? That's what we need to have. I don't know if that was section I wasn't paying attention. Haha. <laughs> but that's how it runs. And you totally forget that you ever saw him, like five minutes later. Why? Because there was no real interaction. You weren't there. You were thinking about something else. If you've ever been introduced to new people and they tell you their names, you have no idea what their names are instantly after they said it because you were thinking about something else. Because being introduced to people has a very specific program. Hey, oh, you're a friend of Mike's. Oh, it's great to meet you. What's your name? Oh, good. Okay, I have no idea what your name is. That is how we work. And the problem is, is that we would like to have other kinds of interactions with people, specifically human beings, besides wanting to be awake and aware for certain experiences in our lives, we would like to uh, interact with other human beings in a real way. It's called intimacy in some schools of psychology, right? or just being conscious for the conversation. And it gets harder and harder to consciously do things once you've developed a program for it. And there's a neurological basis for this, neuron pathways and so on and so forth that I won't bore you with because mostly I don't understand them. But for sure, once you do things one way, it gets easier and easier to do it that way and harder and harder to do it anyway else. Ask anybody who's older and they'll tell you that it's true. This is a problem about gold. Rabbi Shalom Gold, he should live and be well. Um, told me once that when he was uh, exploring these aspects of himself, um, so there was somebody who came into the yeshiva and he told himself, he's like, I'm going to go really interact with this guy. I'm going to go there and have a fully conscious interaction with this human being he was gearing himself up he's gonna go do it and he walked up to the guy and it was like a few minutes into the conversation when he realized that he was not there at all <laughs> the whole program took over and he got kicked out of his own interaction he said it was so uh challenging to him to, to identify that and what a struggle it is to, to be here and to be aware and awake and to be acting from that place good so true for other gold probably even more true for us. That's how it goes. So what's the other side? The other side is things that you try to do consciously, right? Things you do from a place of DOS, where you're aware and awake and you're making decisions and you're really there. Um, uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Dr. Becker has a, a thing about, it's uh, you here now, you me now, something, I forgot. He's got three things where it's, it's, it's you as an individual and this place where we are now in this place and time. I'm not having regurgitating some past interaction. Right? I'm, I'm legit present. Uh, Be Here Now was a big thing in the 60s from uh, what's the name's book? All the parrots on the island. Be Here Now. I don't remember. So that's the struggle that we have. 
and it's, and it's for sure as you get older um, and new things stop happening uh, where you got married and you had the kids and whatever and your life settles into a certain routine uh, you get less and less involved and your mind gets freer and freer to do whatever it wants and uh, for many times it has nothing to do so it does uh, destructive things and it gets into obsessive thoughts and loops and things and all kinds of fun stuff right but and for sure what it leads to is depression right the deader and deader you become to your world the less and less consciously involved you are in it you're literally not there right? nothing more depressing than that than realizing another week has gone by and there was nothing and you look back and it was just programs being run the whole time you may not consciously recognize that that's what happened but that's what happened another week they started zipping by it's like the first time you drive somewhere new Right? So it seems to take a long time, but always on the way back it seems shorter. And for sure the next couple times you go, it gets shorter and shorter. Because you're less and less there. Your weeks get shorter, your years get shorter. Because you've got a program for everything at a certain point. Right? You've done a few weddings, you've done a few bar mitzvahs, you've done a few things. It just becomes a routine and you're less there. And that's a scary thought because we want to be more there for life, obviously. Right? We'd like to live as much as we can in the short period of time that we have. I certainly don't want to sleep through it. Uh, certain things, yeah. I don't mind sleeping through, like Robert Green said. I'm very happy to have washing machines. I don't really want to be there for the clothing washing anymore. I'm happy to have those things, toilets and stuff. Instead of uh, I was talking to somebody, they're talking to me about uh, chamber pots and stuff that they had when they were kids. As an older person, I mean, it's uh, incredible to think of that life where emptying the chamber pots was like a morning chore. Right? Think about that. Very happy to have toilets, not to be have to be conscious for the waste removal part of my life good so this is the struggle that we have so the the scariness of this is how prevalent it is right um, both in terms of the breadth of it how many different activities you have that are like that up to and including your interactions with other people your thought processes right? this is something that should be very scary for people you you have very particular thoughts and those feel very intimate to you right it feels very much like you your thoughts i know there's a book you are not your thoughts i think john kabat zinn and it's true because uh if you've ever had a, a condition for sure any of you have mental conditions or even if not if you have particular situations uh that happen to you right a, 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 a death in the family or a, or a, a divorce or a certain traumatic experiences that happen you're in an accident or something and then you look online at these uh, groups, support groups for these things. If other people having your exact thoughts, same exact things that your brain was saying, they're saying the exact same things in the exact same order, sometimes with the exact same words. And it's very scary because it felt like I was thinking that. But it's just a thought program being run. Right? When people are in accidents, these are the thoughts that your brain creates. There's, a, there's rules to psychology that are legit. Rules, and it's frightening because that guy's thinking my thoughts. Uh-oh. So if my actions can be programmed and my speech and my social interactions also my communication can be programmed even my thoughts can be programmed and feelings right eventually there can be nothing left of me where do i go so it's a war uh inside in this sense it's a war between the programs and the dos uh it's a war that you have to fight and uh, you have to pick your battles right? like any good war you got to pick your battles right? you probably don't want to fight down the body on the stairs thing right maybe let the body win that one uh, eventually, maybe not, but you probably want to pick, you know, date night with the wife as a time to be conscious, as opposed to walking downstairs. Right? Pick your uh, pick your battles. 
So what they've discovered in psychology, and I vaguely remember why it was connected to video games, but it doesn't matter for our purposes. Um, morality. Now morality is something that people feel very strongly. Right? This is uh, an area that really hits people deep. Right? You get into moral debates with people, they get very heated very fast because these are like core beliefs. What's right and what's wrong in these things are very, uh, very entrenched in human beings. So in research that they've done, you know, cross whatever, and I think we maybe spoke about this, um, what they found is that there are five areas in which your human beings seem to be, uh, they, they universally trigger a sense of right and wrong, a sense of moral uh, choice, that there's a good and a bad here, there's a right and a wrong here. Okay, there's five areas uh, where this seems to work, and it doesn't seem to matter what culture you're from or how developed it is or what language you speak. This seems like part of how human beings are built. Ready? So let's go through the five. Number one, uh, care, hurting people or helping people. Okay, and that kind of thing. As soon as it comes to helping someone or hurting someone, we instantly identify uh, that there's a moral choice being made and that helping people is good and that hurting people is bad. Now, the definitions of helping and hurting are going to change culturally, but the idea that there's a choice between helping and hurting and that helping is good and hurting is bad, that's universal. Um, secondly is loyalty to a group, right? Loyalty to your family, loyalty to your sports team, loyalty to your job, to your like work uh, environment, assuming it's not a, it's not, you know, a negative one, right? Loyalty to your team, loyalty to your whatever, that betraying the, your teammates or your family members or your wife or your whatever it is, we all identify that that's bad that there's a good, bad choice being made, and that that's bad, and that loyalty to the group is a good thing. I think about it in terms of, like, protagonists in a, in a film. Right? These are the... A guy who hurts other people in a way that's clearly hurting, and not that he's helping other people by hurting them, like getting the bad guys, like Batman or whatever. If you're just hurting people, that's bad. A guy who's betraying his family is bad, unless in some sense he's being loyal to something else. These are, these are clear. Number three is a respect for genuine authority or a recognition of a dominance hierarchy. That means I recognize that there's people above me, below me, I recognize my place in the, in the I like that phrase, dominance hierarchy, right? And respect for the idea that I get, uh, like in the military, right? I have superior officers, I get orders, and I have to uh, follow, I have a place in this thing, and not to step outside of my place. Okay, we're going to come back to this one uh, soon because, uh, you know, this one is clearly uh, faded with time. Um, but to the extent that we can identify that there is a dominance hierarchy. So working outside of that um, is recognized to be a moral choice. I know that it's bad. Those to good. Okay, unless you can somehow vilify the, the, the hierarchy and then it's a good thing that you're uh, stepping out. Fairness, also, which is a sense that I give you and you give me, right? That if I've given you something, you need to reciprocate. You know, the sense of being fair, that also is a good, bad thing. That if you don't provide for me when I provided for you, we can identify that to be morally incorrect. And the final one is purity, which is super interesting. It has to do with contamination. 
of the body. Um, and other things that you would consider disgusting. This gets into like drug use and prostitution and stuff. And really gross stuff uh, that people do with their bodies. We can also understand there's a morality there. Right? It's a very interesting uh, concept. So these are worth thinking about um, altogether. Uh, one other thought to throw out there that they mentioned in the interview was that uh, people that identify themselves as conservative, uh, not conservative Jews, but conservative in their viewpoints, uh, they tend to give equal balance to all five areas. Whereas people that think of themselves as liberal, whatever that means to them, but they think of themselves as more liberal-minded, they tend to be focused on care, which is helping hurting others, and loyalty to their group, and less on the other three. Right, so you got to picture a hippie, a filthy hippie from the <laughs> uh, from the '60s. It's first of all literally filthy, right? In terms of the purity thing, we're talking about body contamination on a massive scale, right? Literally filthy, stinky people, and uh, you know, drug use and uh, and uh, and free love and all these things. Really, the debasement on a physical level. For sure, the purity thing, the fairness thing, also, not necessarily a sense of uh, because I've gotten, I have to give back. That ability to take take a free ride when it comes, and uh, respect for a, a dominance hierarchy. I have no concept of a dominance hierarchy, man. So these are the five areas. So why do I bring this up? One, because hey, you know, you should think about fun stuff, and two, because. There's a program for morality. That's what this is exposing. And you could agree or disagree or define these things differently. But what they're finding is that morality itself, the sense that you have of right and wrong, which is hard to get it even more. Like I could even accept that my thoughts are running programs. But my sense of right and wrong, I mean, isn't that like the core of, of free will and choice? That that itself has programs that it runs? That every human being is built in a way to react with moral outrage in certain situations? albeit, let's say, culturally defined or whatever, that itself is, uh, that is very, it's even more frightening uh, than any of the other things that we've spoken about. Right? If you think it through, you'll see it's a terrifying thought. Right? That at this point now, my actions, my speech, my thoughts and feelings, and now even my moral sense of right and wrong, which is pretty core, about as core as you get, that all of those things uh, are, can, be can be merely programs being run um, now again, there's no chiddush to that. If you've ever had a political conversation with an idiot, uh, you uh, you were aware instantly that moral outrage does not indicate, you know, uh, mental activity on any level. That is, uh, I'm saying this for whatever side you're on. You've met the idiots on the other side who just say the things that they heard, and but I seem to be having genuine feelings about it, the legitimately uh, legitimate righteous indignation about they don't even understand what they're saying right so these uh, that sense but to recognize for ourselves that that's true and so all the struggle that we have always is to try to wrest control of these things so that our our feelings and thoughts our moral choices our uh, speech our actions all of it can become more and more conscious and will become more and more alive so Ravolbi in his uh, in volume two of Ali Shore so he he has a chapter called Firmkeit that's also required reading um, I mean, Ali Shore in general, and specifically that chapter, where he, where he says that there is an instinct, there is a program for connecting to God. Okay? And this is the, the corest, most frightening um, point of all. That even 
the connecting to your creator, even that has a program. And he talks there about the details of that program and how it'll look different than a conscious development of a relationship with God. But building a relationship with God, having a relationship with God is also fully programmable. Right? So that means, if you put it all together, that means that you can, you can wake up wherever you are. Right? You could be in yeshiva, you could be doing whatever, you, and all of the moral things you're doing, the tefillah, the sense of connection uh, with your creator, the sense of moral rightness as you do the right thing, you're doing the good thing, not the easy thing, and not the thing that's best for you, but you're doing the morally correct thing, and you're doing good, you're righteous, and you're connected, and your thoughts are zen, your feelings, and your what do you call it, and it's all not you. It's all a bunch of programs being run. That should be, I think that is the, literally the most terrifying thing that a human being can contemplate. And it should scare you out of your programs into trying to struggle for control of this machine. Okay, that's the, the goal. Because if you don't recognize that it's happening, you dupe yourself into thinking that you're consciously living, and really you're not. And then you're gonna look back decades from now and be like, well, what just happened? And unfortunately, we, uh, Shiva used to get more of them, but we used to get guys like that. And it was so, these are guys in their uh, 50s, 60s, getting re uh, to retirement age. And they're realizing that they, something that they knew was very important, they totally blew off. The whole Torah, their whole connection to what it means to be Jewish and these things, Hebrew, being able to daven, this stuff, they realize they never invested in it at all and they don't have it at all. And it's gone. And decades of their life spent working and running programs. And what happened? And it was simultaneously inspiring and uh, super depressing and frightening. You know, inspiring that at a, a, they're able to admit that, they, that there were important things that they didn't invest in, which is, uh, takes a lot of humility, but terrifying and, and, and depressing that that can happen. And these were good people. We're talking about good people, smart people. You know, so I, I like to think of myself as a good, smart person, but that doesn't in any way protect me. And Adarabha may actually hurt me uh, in terms of this area, because the better you are and the smarter you are, the more sophisticated your programs can be. If you were pr like naturally a, a horrible person, it's very easy then to gain conscious uh, control because you have to keep choosing not to be so horrible. But if you can program yourself or you were programmed by parents or culture to be quote unquote a good person, that's much harder to wake up. It's one of the reasons why they hold the Tzadik Ben Tzadik. Uh, his feelings are more powerful than the Tzadik Ben Rasha because it's actually a harder fight when you have good programs to be conscious anyway. That's a more difficult struggle. So this is the idea that I wanted to share. I, I think it was they were talking about moral choices in video games or something. I, I don't remember what the conversation was that brought this out. But the, the take home for us is that each day, the struggle, this is, uh, we're coming up on Elul. Next week's year, we'll already be in Elul. Um, it's a big time uh, for everyone. Uh, it's a time we're supposed to wake up. We're going to talk a lot about it when we get there. You know, the chauffeur's meant to be like an alarm and wake us up, like the Ramam says. This is what it means to wake up. And when uh, Rav Yaakovson spoke to us in the Yeshiva, we got him to speak a few times in the Yeshiva and Zichon. Um, so he told us this was the fight to have. He said, don't worry about doing more, guys. Don't worry about trying to do more good. Worry about being there for the good that you're already doing. 
fight to become conscious of what's already happening. Don't run behavior modification programs. I can train dogs, okay, using behavior modification techniques. It doesn't mean anything about you, okay? The fact that you can muster yourself into better behavior or better speech or better even thoughts, feelings, or moral choices, that just means you're good at programming, that's all. And I'm not saying that you won't get scarfed for that, you will. But to adjust the program, that's not the answer. The answer is to free yourself of the program and to be able to judge it and to uh, use it when it's appropriate and not when it's not to become the conscious director. That's what the fight should be. So looking towards Elo and waking up, what it means is don't be a better boy or girl. And then you're going to spend it every, that itself becomes its own cycle where every year you're just going to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, you'll wake up and I'm going to be a good boy or girl and I'll do mitzvah and I'll stop doing all my stupidity. And then after circus or whatever, uh, you go back to the same stupidity you did before. Why? Because that you just have a new Elo program that you're on. You have a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur program that you're on. Good boy, bad boy, blah, blah, blah. What you need to do is stop running programs altogether and come alive and awake. Again, I know people are going to ask me, or you're asking yourselves, okay, great, great idea. So, so how, do, how do we do it? How do we do it? So that's a very, <laughs> that's a very good question. But for the most part, um, and this is Rabbi Green's point, for the most part, it's an act of will. There isn't a machine. There isn't a magic button. There's no pill that you can take. There's nothing that some technique or trick um, to give you where you can become conscious because based on our conversation up until now, you'll understand that anything, anything that anyone gives you to become conscious will become a program pretty much instantly. Like, for example, uh, people ask how you're doing. So my brother's a very interesting person. God bless him. And uh, so he, he liked to, you know, he's very out-of-the-box kind of guy. So people would ask him how he's doing, he'd say, fairly decent. Now, fairly decent is a very strange thing to say. Right? Nobody says that, that, those combinations of words. I'm doing fairly decent. And so it was like uh, humorous, because like you're supposed to say, okay, or thank God, or whatever, wherever you're from. Right? I'm doing all right, whatever you're supposed to say. He would say, fairly decent, and it would be like a little shot of consciousness, right? where all of a sudden you're awake for the interchange because he did something weird. But my brother's eight years older than I am, and so in watching him, I understood fairly decent to just be of correct response to how you're doing. And so for me, it was a totally normal phase that meant nothing. You hear? And so there was no awakeness or consciousness for me, because that was just what you say when people ask you how you're doing. And even with yourself, it happens. People say, uh, how you doing? So as a joke for a little while, as a half joke, half point, you know, I'm similar to my brother in some ways, uh, I would say, thank God I'm doing like, how you doing? I'm like, oh, thank God I'm doing. Still doing. All right? And, then, you know, there's, there was a point in there, but it was also a little bit humorous. You know, it's not what people expect, and so you're kind of a little bit more awake for the interchange. And yeah, it makes you think for a second, wake up for a second. But now I, I, I don't mean anything by it. That's just what I say when people ask me how I'm doing. Thank God, still doing. Okay, so whatever program that you set up, and you want to be weird, and you want to say strange things, and you want to brush your teeth with your other hand, and... You know, put the shampoo right on your head instead of uh, in your hand. Whatever you want to do, blindfold yourself when you climb downstairs. Whatever your plan is, eventually that'll just become the blindfold down the stairs, left hand toothbrush, shampoo on the head program, and it, it won't make any difference. You'll go right back to sleep. Right? Your alarm clock, you learn how to ignore the alarm clock. That's just how we're built. Right? You will go back to sleep. It's an act of will. It's an act of choice. It's going to have to keep changing. I believe would change his sitter. Uh, he said on a regular basis, just so that the 
the, the print would change and give them another chance. What you can do is set up things that give you a chance, but at the end it's a choice. And you have to wake up in the morning and say, I'm, making a, I'm going to make a choice to be conscious. And, I, and then very many times, and for sure in the beginning, you end up like Rabbi Gold. We're going to make the decision to be conscious and then look back and realize that it's all over and you don't know what happened. But the more that you do it and the more you make that choice, the, 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 the better you'll get at it until Bezrat Hashem, uh, consciousness as a choice, it's never going to be easy by definition. Think about it. It's <laughs> you're like, well, how can I become conscious? What you're asking me for is you want a program for consciousness? That's the opposite of what it is. That's an oxymoron. You can't have a program for consciousness. So you want some way it's going to be easy to stay conscious? It can't be. It can't be. What's easy is programs. If you're being conscious means you're not running programs, it means it's not going to be easy. You've got to carry it all yourself. You have to think through things. It's much more difficult. Always. Always. That's why we invented programs, because they're easier. That is a fact. So there are no tricks, and anybody who tries to sell you one is a liar. There isn't anything. If davening could be a program, which it is, right? maybe the most intense experience, close to nevuah, that a human being can have, if that can be a program, and we all know it can, if my moral outrage is a program, my thoughts, my feelings, my words, so what am I going to give you? Some trick where you're going to run it? It'll just be the consciousness program. It's just me saying weird stuff. It's just me being a weird guy. It's just me saying the inappropriate thing uh, for the shock value and to get you to uh, react. Learning... Being interested in learning, moral growth and development, all of it can be programmed. So you want to learn how to become conscious? I don't have an answer for you. And I don't think there is one. It's a fight each person is going to have to have, and it's going to come down at the end of the day just to a sheer act of will, that you can choose something, and by virtue of choosing it, you can make it happen. That is uh, where all this boils down to, and like I said, by definition. Since the fight that we have each day is between programming and consciousness, the choice for consciousness is going to be just that. It's going to be a choice. And there is no program for it, and any program for it would by definition not be it. The choice that we have to make that choice, to select consciousness as a way to be, and then to fight for it, that's what, is, that's what falls on us. Uh, in our effort to become conscious. And obviously, like I said before, pick your battles. I, I don't think the shampoo thing is probably the uh, unimportant place to start, but uh, maybe for practice. For practice, you can practice with the shampoo. Right? That are, those are the ideas that I had from this morality thing. And uh, please God, uh, as I continue with research, we'll, uh, we'll continue with these uh, shiurim next week.